Paul laying out a case for forgiveness, um, what he's actually done is he's actually answered several common questions that often arise concerning that subject. The first really question that he answered was, can we forgive? In other words, do we have the capability to be able to forgive people that have actually hurt us so, so deeply and caused us so much pain? Well, according to Paul, the answer to that is yes. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that ability because of the work of Christ in you. He has regenerated you, and he has given you and I a heart that, that can forgive even the most gross sins that has been committed against us. So we can indeed forgive. The second question that he answered, and we saw this last week, is should we forgive or should I forgive? Uh, we know we can, but in every case, are, are, are we called by God to forgive uh, other people? And, and Paul answered that question, and he, he gave a very clear yes we should forgive those that sin against us. Why? Because forgiving those who have sinned against us is consistent with our calling. Jesus Christ has not called us, called us to be comfortable. He's called us to do what's difficult. He's called us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the way that we demonstrate that is by loving one another. And the way that we demonstrate we love each other, Jesus said it himself. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, which means to take the needs and the well-being and the interest of other people exalted above our own. And when you do that, oftentimes it's going to come to a great personal expense to yourself. Guys, that is the very picture of forgiveness. It's looking after somebody else's well-being, even the person who has harmed you. And again, you will pay a high price in order to be able to forgive that person. Well, this morning, uh, I believe that Paul answers yet another question. I think that this might be probably the most common question that at least I hear when it comes to this subject of forgiveness. Here's the question. The question is, how do, is what does true forgiveness look like? What does true forgiveness look like? In, in other words, how do I know if I've actually fully forgiven those that have caused me so much pain? How, how do I know when that happens? And I think this is such an important question uh, because uh, oftentimes we may think that we've forgiven somebody, but in all actuality, our actions demonstrate that we haven't forgiven them, right? It always kind of makes me giggle. Maybe it shouldn't, but when somebody says, oh, I, I've got no problem. I, I've completely forgiven them a long time ago. Now, if they caught on fire, I wouldn't douse them with a bucket of water, but I just let them burn. Well, if that's you, you, you may not quite be there in the whole forgiveness idea, all right? Uh, sometimes we wonder if we've forgiven because we're still dealing with some of the residual pain and difficulty, and, and we're dealing with temptations to want to retaliate and to be able to get back at somebody. And, and so we, we, we sit back and we say, have I really been able to forgive this person? Or when will I ever fully uh, be, be able to forgive the person who's hurt me because now I'm dealing with these issues and these feelings, and, and certainly I wouldn't be feeling this way or thinking these things if I had fully and completely forgiven them. So listen, this might be a question for you in your particular context, in your life. You, you might be wondering, hey, God, I've, I've tried, but, but how do I know? How do I know if I've truly forgiven or not? Well, Paul's going to answer that in these few verses this morning. And he's going to do it by giving us two marks of true forgiveness. True, two marks of true forgiveness. So let's look at the first uh, immediately in verse 17. The first mark to, to forgiveness is this. True forgiveness is receptive. True forgiveness is receptive. Now, look in your Bibles at verse 17. Look what Paul writes. 
He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him. Now he's speaking of Onesimus, the runaway slave who was, who was sinned against Philemon. He says, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me, Paul. So uh, there's nothing really complex about that particular command, right? He's, Paul is just saying, if you've truly forgiven uh, him, then you need to receive him. You, you need to be receptive to him, and you need to receive him in the same way that you would receive me. So the only question that remains for us is how would Philemon have received Paul at this time? Well, remember what Paul has been doing uh, all the way through this letter. He has been doing everything he can to come across and to meet and to see and to talk to Philemon as an equal, hasn't he? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has authority over him. He has the right to tell him what to do. He is a spiritual father to him. It's through Paul's ministry where he's come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's got authority, but he's done everything he can not to lord that over him. He's done everything he can to just come alongside of him. And he goes, hey man, we're brothers. We're friends. We, we are equals. Or as Paul says in the first part of 17, we're partners. The word partner there literally means or or suggests a deep, genuine friendship. It implies a strong binding together that is inseparable by natural means. It's actually a word that is often used in the New Testament to describe the relationship and fellowship, unique relationship and fellowship that believers have with one another. In the beginning of Acts, when the church was very, very young, in Acts chapter 2, at the birth of the church, the Bible, the, the, uh, uh, the scriptures use the same word, just a different form, but it says there, it speaks of the believers devoting themselves together to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. See that? Tight-knit unity and fellowship with one another. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16 when he's discussed in context of the Lord's Supper. When, we, when believers come together at the Lord's Supper, he, he speaks of the believer's participation in the blood of Christ and the participation in the body of Christ. There's that word, participation, partner. Again, every time it's used, it's this picture of this tight-knit, unbreakable fellowship that believers in Jesus Christ share. So this is what Paul and Philemon, this is their relationship. This is how they treat each other. Now, how would that actually look? Well, if Paul were to get out of prison and he were to go from Rome to Colossae, and he comes to his house, and Philemon sees him coming, what is Philemon going to do? He's going to welcome him with open arms. He's going to welcome him. He's going to go come. He's going to invite him into his house. He's going to share his resources with him. He's, he's going to be in fellowship with him. He's going to be friends with him. And he sits there, and he says, now, this same exact way that you've done this for me, he says, in order for you really to forgive You need to receive Onesimus who has wronged you in the same exact way. When he comes, you need to embrace him. When he comes, you need to invite him in. When he comes, you need to open up your home and do life with him in the same way that you would do with me. Now, the only way that this would would be at all possible, of course, is if Philemon would begin to look at Onesimus in the same way that he did Paul that he would look at him and he would no longer hold his wrong and his transgression against him any longer, that he would view him as a person who had not normally sinned against him or who had not sinned against him. It's the only way that he could be able to work that out and live that way and treat him and receive him that way. Would you agree? The only way. But there's a problem here, and there's a difficulty, and I struggle with this all week, even till this morning, okay? This is letting you know how bad of a preacher I am. But, but what happens, I struggle with this text so much because the problem is, is the context that's occurring here 
is not the common context for you and I in the struggles, the areas of struggles that we're struggling with. Let, let me explain. Here we're talking about two believers in Jesus Christ. One has sinned against the other, right? Onesimus has now sinned against Philemon. And now he's coming humbly to the one that he has hurt, seeking reconciliation, begging for forgiveness. And so what the overarching, very clear point is, when that happens, when another believer in Christ that you've had a falling out with is repented of their sin and comes and seeks forgiveness, you must forgive and receive them to yourself as though they had never sinned before and you move on with life. Here's the problem. Most of our pains and aches and pains, many of us, doesn't look like that. The forgiveness that we need to be able to extend is not to another brother and sister in Jesus Christ. They may be lost. Uh, in, in fact, it may even go beyond that. It may be a person who is unwilling to seek forgiveness or unwilling to even repent. If they have another chance to be able to harm you, they're ultimately going to be able to do it again. So what do we do in those areas? Well, I think the underlining principle is still the same. Listen very carefully. You can't do it in the same way that this is worded out here or uh, that it plays out here. Why? Because you can't have Christian fellowship with an unbeliever. You, you can't embrace them and receive them as a partner because they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. It's impossible. You can't have fellowship and invite somebody in the home with somebody that wants nothing to do with you, right? Or a person who has abused you and they haven't repented from that abusive action. You can't invite them back into your home. But what can you do? You can't make a decisive decision within your heart not to hold this sin against them. You can make a decisive decision in the heart of whatever contact you have with that individual whatever conversation that you may have with that individual, whatever conversation, whatever you may say about that individual is saturated in mercy and in grace. And your speech and your actions are a demonstration that you have made a definitive, a, a, a definitive decision not to hold and to treat them as somebody who has wronged you. Do you see that? So whether you're a believer, it's going to look a little bit different. We understand that. If another believer sins against you, comes, repents, embrace them, get back into that same fellowship. If it's an unbeliever, somebody unwilling to repent, those things are not going to be possible. But what is possible is your forgiveness within your heart, a decisive decision not to hold that sin once again against them and not to treat them as though they have wronged you, but to treat them as though they are innocent. Treat them like Paul is what he says. But this is difficult. Well, let me say this. We know what this looks like, don't we? I mean, we, we know this. You, you said, well, how does that look? What is it? We, we, know, we know this because we've been practicing this principle ever since we were little kids when we first started having relationships. You know, when you were in the sandbox, go way back, all right? You were in the sandbox, and there you are with your buddy. My buddy was Toby Rowe, and Toby was sitting there, and we were playing, and we got mad at each other, and he threw sand in my eye, or I threw sand in his eye. I can't remember. Probably both. And we get angry. He goes his way. He goes to the jungle gym. I go to the swings. We want nothing to do with each other. As time goes by and we begin to get bored, we begin to drift back to the sandbox. And at that particular point, one of us says something like, hey, man, sorry about that. Yeah, I'm sorry too. Yeah. Hey, you want to play with trucks? Yeah, let's do it. And then you play with trucks. And what do you do? You go on at that particular point as though absolutely has nothing happened. You never bring it up again. You never sit there and go, hey, you remember sand in my eye? You never mention it again. You never do any of that. You just carry on. You guys know what I'm talking about? But I think you understand what it looks like, but you also understand that it's, it, it, it's also different. That there are some sins and situations where that's very easy to do, and there's some sins and situations that are far more difficult to do. 
I mean, that may not be very hard to do if the relationship that has been fractured by sin is your coworker who has falsely accused you of stealing their staples, right? If you sit there and go, look, your staples are in your top drawer, and they're like, oh, sorry about that. You're like, hey, we're good. Want to go to lunch? Yeah, we're great. Move out. But if the individual is a spouse who commits adultery on you, that becomes far more difficult to be able to do. All of a sudden, what happens is the reason it so happened is because of what I call the emotion factor. Is because now you're having to do something, but all the emotion inside of you is raging against you doing it, right? I want you to stop and think for a moment uh, about, about how difficult this must have been for Philemon. Here's a man whose world had been completely turned upside down by somebody else's sin. And please understand, that's what our sin does. It turns people's worlds upside down. You don't sin in a vacuum. There's no, there's no, it's, it's a complete lie to say, I'm going to sin and do my own thing and not going to, as long as I don't affect anybody else. Your sin always impacts other people. So what he does is he sins against Philemon. And Philemon's world and his whole household and his family is turned upside down. And there's no doubt this came at great expense to him. And he's suffering and he's, and he's dealing with this. And then one day the person that has caused all of this pain shows up at the door. Just shows up at the door. He opens up the door and there he is. And don't you know that there was a myriad of emotions that were rushing through him at the moment that he laid uh, eyes on this guy that had transgressed and sinned against him and caused him all this pain. Would you agree? And he sits there and he looks at them. And he doesn't even know what to say because he is a godly man. So he's at least he's, he's restrained enough not to start cussing at him or, you know, beat him up at the moment. And there is this man hunched over. He says nothing. He just very humbly puts a letter forward to him like this. He opens up the letter. He doesn't know what to say. So he begins to read this letter. He finds that it's by Paul. Why in the world would Paul write him? This is the great apostle Paul. He begins to read, and just in the first few verses, he begins to understand what this is all about, that he's going to call him to seek forgiveness and to reconcile with this, with this brother who has sinned against him. And so as he comes, he reads through it, and then he gets to this part, this part that says, hey, listen, receive him as you would receive me. And here's what's so difficult about this. He has to make the decision right then. He can't sit there and go, hey, listen, can you come back in a month? hey, listen, can you give me 10, 20 days? I've got a series of meetings with my therapist and we've got to be able to unpack some of these, some, some of these inward, deep mommy issues that I have and then only then am I going to be able to really forgive you, okay? So come back in a little while. No, what he's doing is Paul's saying, I want you on the spot to make a decisive decision right here, right now to forgive him and to receive him in spite of all, all the feelings and emotions that are raging within you in spite of that. You know why this is so encouraging to me? It's so encouraging to me because what it teaches me is that forgiveness really has very little to do about my feelings. It has very little to do about my emotions. And it has everything to do with my actions. Paul is not commanding him to feel something. He's commanding him to do something. Forgiveness is not you trying to line up all your feelings and make sure once all those good feelings are there that you've finally forgiven them. It is a decisive decision to no longer hold a grudge against the person who has sinned. You're resisting consistently the temptation to retaliate and purposely sets aside another's offense while seeking the best for that other person. It's the decision, it's the action, that's forgiveness. We put too much emphasis on what we're feeling during the duration of that. 
way too much emphasis on the feeling. I've heard so many times in ministry, somebody say something to this. Maybe this is you today. Says, "I, I, I want to forgive, Brother Mike. I want to forgive. I know it's right to forgive. Christ commands us to be able to forgive. I know the scriptures. He says, if I don't forgive my brother, then God will not forgive me. I want to have fellowship with him. I want to forgive. But my heart just has not let me fully forgive that individual. Now, they're right in their theology. Their theology is correct in that the Bible commands us to be able to forgive others that have harmed us with our heart with our heart. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 35 says this, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, now no, from the heart. But this is where we get it wrong. We're a little bit messed up on what the heart is. See, you and I think our heart, who we are deep down, is where all of those feelings are bouncing around and exploding and moving. It's not your heart. What we know from the Old Testament and New Testament, when we talk about the heart, the heart is the seed of the intellect. It's what you know to be true. It's what you, what, what, you, what you want to do. It's what the true you really desperately wants to do, and that's pleasing God. So when he says that you must forgive from the heart, he's saying you must forgive by making a decisive decision no longer to hold this sin against them anymore. That's forgiveness, is what he says. And you say, well, then what is all this stuff? What is all this hurt? hurt? What is all this pain? What is all this temptation to strike out? I feel like I'm doing well. Then the person will say something or do something. And all of a sudden, all these negative emotions and negative feelings and negative thoughts begin to rush back into me again. What is that? It's not your heart. It's your flesh. It's your sinful flesh. It's two completely different things. It's not who God has made you. It is the sinful flesh that you now have to wrestle against. It's not your heart. You say, well, what about, what, what about the desire for revenge? It's the flesh. What about the temptation not to forgive? It's the flesh. What about the temptation to be able to throw it back up into their heart, into their face constantly again? It's it's the flesh. It's not who you are. Who you are is the fact that you want to be obedient to God and you want to forgive that person and you've made that decisive decision. That's forgiveness. Paul wrestled with the same thing. This is so encouraging to me. The man who wrote the majority of the New Testament can struggle in the same area. And I, I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Sorry for him, but good for me, all right? He says here in Rome, see if you can, in Romans seven nineteen, he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody? Do you know why you're sitting there going, I don't want to do this. And you struggle so much against the emotion that's driving you to sin or tempting you to be able to sin is because that's a regenerated heart. A regenerated heart does not want to do the will of God. But you're sitting there and you're struggling so much. And he says, but what I do is because the flesh gets a hold of me. He, he explains it this way. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it. It's not who I truly am in Christ, but sin that dwells within me. It's the flesh that's got the better of me. He's not, he's not shifting blame. He's not shifting responsibility. He just identifies that there's a difference. And you need to identify that there's a difference. It's just like every other, look, look, the unwillingness to forgive and to hold on to bitterness and to hold people's wrongs against them is a sin. Would you agree? And with every sin, there comes a temptation to sin. 
So as you sit there in the moment and in, in, in those thoughts of retaliation and those thoughts of saying evil things or harsh things or getting back at the one that's hurt you, what are those? They're temptation, not necessarily sin. If today, if you're struggling with, say you're struggling with lust, and, and on your heart all day long today is, is, is that maybe at one point, so everybody's got to go to bed, and when they do, I'm going to sneak over and I'm going to watch something on the computer or on your iPad or I, whatever it is, and you're going to look at something and you're struggling, and all day long you're struggling and you're a grump and you're miserable and you're sitting back because what you're doing is you don't want to go there, but yet your flesh wants that. It keeps drawing you to that. Now let me ask you this. If you don't act on it, your flesh is saying, go do it. And you say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to flee this. I'm not going to do it. You, you, you tell your wife, hey, this is what's going through my mind. Keep me accountable. Don't let me do this. You may feel like garbage, but you have been faithful. You have been faithful. And it's the same thing in the area of this forgiveness. Another illustration of this, I think, is here is in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 28. He says, love your enemies do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He doesn't command any emotion here. He only commands action. Once again, Jesus was not commanding an emotional response. He was calling for a willful, deliberate, and rational act. My problem and your problem is we submit to our flesh and our feeling rather than submitting to what we know to be true. He said, well, what do I do with all these feelings? What do I do with that? Well, let me tell you this. If you follow those feelings and obey those feelings, you will never act in forgiveness towards anyone. But if you act by faith and make a decisive decision, like Philemon had to do at that particular moment, that I will not hold this against the one who sinned against me. I will not. Listen, your feeling and emotion may still be there, but your actions towards that person is a demonstration that you've definitely started that process, process of forgiveness. You say, will those emotions ever go away? Yeah. How long? I don't know. How long will I hurt? I don't know. But it is what forgiveness looks like. Does that make sense? Are, are, are you with me? Have I completely bored you with that? I, I can tell. All right, we're going to get through the next part. It was a struggle for me to get to that. It was a struggle for me to try to share with folks. You're not necessarily what you feel. Your faith is demonstrated in what you do. And so true forgiveness is sitting there saying, hey, listen, this person has sinned against me, but I'm going to go against every sinful inclination within my heart, or within me, within my flesh. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to live according to my heart, which wants to do the will of God. I'm going to receive them as though they had never sinned against me. That's true forgiveness. Second thing, and we'll be done. True forgiveness is not only receptive. True forgiveness is generous. True forgiveness is generous. Now notice what he writes next. He says, if he has sinned against you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now Paul is pretty much confident that Philemon is going to indeed forgive Onesimus. And he's certainly going to receive him as a brother in Christ, as a, as a partner and brother in Christ. But there still is this issue of restitution, okay? Still the issue of restitution. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, when, uh, because of Onesimus' sin, once again, and he left, he left a mess behind. That's what sin does. Would you agree? What has he done? He's broken a contract, a legal binding contract of work and, and, and pay with, with Philemon. He, he's left. That's cost him money, Philemon money. 
Um, he has now had to hire a new worker to be able to come in and to be able to take his place. That's cost him even more money. We believe that in the wording that Paul uses here, that most likely Philemon, in order for him to be able to get all the way to, to uh, uh, Rome, that he would have had to directly steal money, theft from uh, Philemon to be able to get there. So here is his debt mounting up, right? And so what we find is at this particular point, according to Paul, I think what he's suggesting here is that it's always right for the guilty party to at least offer, uh, offer restitution for having wronged another, Okay. Here, I think here, here's how it is. Say I want to borrow your car, all right? You're not going to let me, but just pretend you would allow me to borrow your car. And I'm, I'm your next-door neighbor. And I come over, and I just basically say, Jimmy, listen, ma'am, uh, I'm, I'm changing my oil, but I didn't buy all the oil that I need. Do you mind if I borrow your car real quick, run up to the store? And I know Jimmy. Jimmy's loving. He's caring. He's giving. He's like, sure, man, go ahead and take it. It's all right. So I jump in the car. I take off. An hour and a half later, I come back to his door, and at it, when he opens the door, there I am with tears streaming down my face with the keys in my hand, and there's a wrecker pulling a car that has been completely totaled behind me, all right? And there it is. It's, it's all wrecked. And I'm sitting there going, Jamie, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I was texting. I did what was wrong. I shouldn't have been texting while I was driving your car. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I'm going on this, and Jimmy's just kind of sitting there going, what in the world? Is that even my car? You know, you're, he's, he's trying to put all this stuff together. And finally, he's got some feelings like, yeah, he wrecked my car. And he did it by texting. And then all of a sudden, because I know Jimmy, he has, he has compassion on me. And he begins to sit there and he begins to look at me and he begins to sit there and he goes, hey, Mike, it's, it's okay. It's okay, man. I forgive you. Come here. And he, he kind of picks me up and, and he goes, it, it's, it's all going to be okay, man. I forgive you. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. That's all that really matters to me. That can ultimately be replaced. And I look up, <laughs> really? Jimmy, you, you forgive me? You forgive me for totally, I just totaled your car, man. Yeah, I totally forgive me. And you don't hold it against me anymore, no? So we could still this, we could still do this. Yes, we could still do this. Thank you so much. Here's your key. I hope this all works out. I gotta go change my oil. Good luck with that. At that point, as great as Jimmy is, there is a part of him that sits there and goes, man, there's something wrong here. I'm kind of questioning his repentance. I'm kind of questioning if he's, if he's really, truly broken in what he does. Why? Because we understand naturally that there is a sense for those who are truly repentant to want to do what? To pay restitution, to make what it is that we've done wrong, and to somehow do whatever we can within our power to be able to make it right. The way that would more look is like, Jimmy, I'm going to do everything I can, man, to make this right. Hey, let's sit down. And he'll probably be very gracious. Well, listen, let's talk about it. It's been a long day. We'll talk about it tomorrow. We'll work this out. That's that restitution. The truth is he has a right to that restitution. Within my own heart, in my own repentance, I know that he has a right to that particular restitution as well. And the Bible, uh, during this time, in, in Numbers 5, 7, commands the guilty party to make restitution. It says, make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he is ultimately wronged. So Philemon is right to demand restitution. The law is on his side. It is just. For now, for this man who he has forgiven to now, even though he's forgiven him, to now make right and to be able to pay the debt that he still has. It didn't change the debt for him. So he says, okay, I have the right. There's just a, one huge problem. Onesimus was in no position to pay the debt. No way to pay this debt. He knew it, Onesimus knew it, and Paul knew it. So Paul does something amazing here. Paul 
says, I promise you that I will pay the debt. I'm going to take his debt on myself. He can't pay it, but I can. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to promise you, if you really want that debt to be paid, if in your heart of hearts you need that restoration, uh, restitution, I will make sure, I will assure you that it will be done. And then he does something really neat. In verse 17, or verse 19, he actually grabs the pen out of his secretary who's, who's writing out this letter, and he begins to write with his own hand. Now, Paul would do this. Most of the time when Paul would dictate his letters, but at the very end of the letter, sometimes to show that it was him, he would sign his name or write the very last paragraph, like in the book of Colossians or 2 Thessalonians, he would write it to validate that it was him that was saying all of this that was in the book. Here, he does it for completely different reasons. It's not for validation. He just sits there for security. He says, hey, listen, not only am I swearing it, but he writes this in verse 19. I, Paul, write with my own hand, I will repay. So not only does he have a promise, but now he has the security of a legal document, of a legal IOU. Hey, here it is. I'm going to pay it for you. Don't worry about it. Put his sin, uh, put his debt on my account. I will replace it for him. Well, sounds a little bit like the gospel, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like what Jesus ultimately does for us. But what's interesting to me is he gets this done. Now, what I think Paul is doing is I think he's, he's hoping and he's prodding and he's nurturing. And what he's wanting Philemon to do is not only to forgive him and to receive him, but to be immensely generous with him and to forgive his debt. He's got a right for it to be paid back, but he wants him to do something even more righteous than demanding it. He wants him just to forgive him. He wants to be generous in his grace. Do you see that? He wants him to be generous. But then he adds this last little sentence, and I love this. This, this is how parents work. This is how we work. At the very end of that, he says, to say nothing of you owing uh, me even your own self. Okay, so here's kind of what he's going to say. He said, I'm, I'm not going to mention the fact that you owe me your very life, Okay. So here's what you need to do. I'll pay it all back. Don't worry about it. Hey, man, if you feel right, you need it. I'm here to be able to pay for it. Not to mention how you owe your own life to me, all right? Yeah, I mean, we, we've dealt with people like that, right? It's kind of like, hey, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. All right, he's, he's kind of following the same exact thing. Why does he do this? Again, just hear me very clearly. Paul, not, Paul has done everything he can not to strong arm this man to do what is right. He's done everything he can not to manipulate him or coerce him in any way at all. But what he is willing to do is to be able to compel him to do what is right in light of truth. In light of truth. I think this is the same thing that Jesus would do. Do you remember when Jesus tells the parable of the unjust, um, the unjust servant or the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18? He tells a story about this man who had an enormous debt, humongous debt. And he was forgiven all his debt, a debt that he could never ultimately pay. And he, was, he extended mercy in that he, he, he wasn't put to death or he, he wasn't enslaved for that particular debt, but he also extended grace. He was given this generous amount over and all. He just forgave his debt altogether. It's mercy and grace working together. Then a man who owed him a debt, it's very small, but he just couldn't pay it comes up to him and he ultimately says to him, he says, hey, he goes, he, goes, he goes, I can't pay this debt. And instead of him being generous to this man in light of the generosity that he's received, he drops the hammer and he demands that his bill should be paid in full. And so what are we saying? I think what Paul is ultimately saying to him is this. He's saying, Philemon, you have a right 
to be able to make this person pay for what they've ultimately done. He says, but he, you know he can't pay it. I would want you to be generous. I'd want you to be giving. And as a reminder, I want to let you know that Onesimus is not the only one with a debt that he cannot pay. What is he talking about? Well, Paul had shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, but I think Paul would go beyond him just owing Paul and really seeing the true picture of what Jesus Christ has ultimately done. Jesus Christ has forgiven us our sin through mercy. He has sat back and he has said that all your sin is forgiven you. God has forgiven us our sin. I'm not going to give you what it is that you are deserving. But he went so beyond that, did he not? He said, not only that, but I'm just paying it all. I'm going to pay it all. We pay every single bit of it for you. Your whole debt is completely erased. And I think what he's saying is, hey, listen, you've been in the same position. Now take the same generosity of God that has been given you and extend it outwards. See, here's what I find. I find that sometimes what people deal with is they sit back and they say, listen, I've forgiven them. We're going to restore our relationship. I'm not going to hold it against them. But what I am going to do, consciously or unconsciously, You sit there and say, but now you need to somehow make this right. And you need to go through, and what they do is with a spouse or somebody that sinned against them, everything they do is in them working to finally pay off the debt that this individual say that they ultimately forgave. That's not generosity. And it's certainly not forgiveness. Christ forgives us, and he eliminates all of our debt. He doesn't hold it against us. Even now, you sit there and say, man, somehow I got to pay Jesus back. First of all, you can't pay him back. From now into eternity, you can't pay him back. Secondly, he's not looking for you to pay him back because the giver gets the glory. What he's asking you and I to do is now live in light of his glorious grace and generosity. Now extend it outward to others. And what he's done for us, we do for others. What is true forgiveness? It's receiving others. What is true forgiveness? It's being generous towards others. That's how we know that we've forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning, we thank you, and we praise you. And